Where can you find God's voice in the noise on reproductive choice? For over a million women and men each year, the question goes beyond politics to become much more pressing and personal, both before and after the choice. And we are called to love the little children just as God does. Listen to Cradle My Heart Radio with your host, Kim Katola, speaker, writer, and broadcaster, sharing God's truth to prevent abortion and help those it hurts. Learn more at cradlemyheart.org. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for having a heart for the issue of preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. I know that in the world at large, uh, with the changing landscape about the legalization of abortion in various states and changes due to Roe v. Wade, Many people are talking about abortion more than ever before, really in my lifetime, but we still do not hear from the voices of those impacted most by an abortion decision. And so I'm very pleased to be able to welcome to the program today Dr. Teresa Burke, who is the founder of the Rachel's Vineyard Retreats, and she has so much more to her credit that we can talk about as our conversation unfolds. Uh, Dr. Burke, welcome to Cradle My Heart Radio. It's great to be with you, Kim, today. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, um, your story still is so inspiring in terms of how you were led into helping those impacted by abortion. Share that with us, you know, and and maybe in light of why you are personally pro-life. I don't know that before you had the experience in the clinical setting that you talked about in your book, Forbidden Grief, I don't know that you were pro-life before that. I mean, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) Tell us about your journey. into this ministry area? Actually, I was pro-life. I was always pro-life. In fact, I ran a youth group for teenagers for many years from the time that I was 18. (laughs) I was running a youth group, and um, it was in that youth group that the subject came up. In fact, there was a survey done in our area of all the high schools, and they wanted to know what was the most pressing problem that um, teens wanted help with. And believe it or not, the the answer that the number one issue that teens wanted help with was help for their friends who had suffered abortion, which I just thought was incredible. So then I started doing some programs and education and, you know, in in the pro-life realm. We also did soup kitchens for, Mm. you know, poor. So there was always like a different topic. But when I heard this was something that teens had identified as the most pressing need, and yet when I would speak to teens, I would ask, um, how many of you know someone who's had an abortion? And the whole entire school would, like, raise their hand. And then I'd say, how many of you have ever heard a person share what that was like for them? And not a single hand went up. Mm. So that was that was actually before the story that I tell more frequently when I'm in interviews, which is when I was going on for my education in psychology, um, you know, of course I was working in a group with eating disorder, that was my first internship, we could call it, and um, the subject of abortion came up in that group, and it was like a bomb going off, with which um, I'm sure we'll talk about today, a trauma response that I recognized from the get-go, which is the fight or flight, the fear freeze, the run away and avoid the topic. Like, But every person in the group had a distinct um, uh, response that was, clearly a trauma response of a survivor mode. So um, when we look at when we look at the trauma responses even of today, they still stay the same, especially as Roe versus Wade was 
um, has been sent back to the states, it's almost like everyone is in the fight rage mode of defending. And this happened in my group because there was a woman that said, um, just to reiterate quickly the story, I know you've heard it before, but um, when a, a woman, her husband was calling and leaving messages on her answering machine in which he would call her a murderer. And this would be so triggering, and it would, it would, it would bring up incredible despair. And so she would slice her wrist with a razor blade, and she ended up in the hospital. And this is a girl in our support group. We saw her every week, and she told us this story, and we were all so sad for her. But one girl said, your husband's a horrible man, and it would, I had an abortion too, and it would just kill me if somebody kept reminding me about it. And then another lady said, F him. She started cursing and swearing. We have a right to control our bodies and to hell with anybody who would make me feel guilty about abortion. Having an abortion is the best thing I ever did. And she just cursed off anyone who would want her to feel differently. And then there was another young lady who actually got up and left the room, slammed the door, left the meeting. And, you know, I called her last, I called her later and I said, are you okay? You seemed upset. Showing a lot of insight there, right? <laughs> because, like, everybody was freaking out in this meeting. And um, it wasn't a productive meeting. It's one of my first experiences running something besides a youth group, right? <laughs> and uh, and um, it was j- when I went to my... Oh, this woman said, I wish we could focus on eating disorders and stop talking about abortion. And I said, did you have one, too? She said, it was a long time ago, and I don't want to talk about it. So here we just see this grief response that's beyond words and uh, aggravates the nervous system and people are going to fight or flight or fear or freeze or avoidance and run away because it's such a difficult painful topic and that reaction continues and then the icing on the cake was going to my supervisor and telling him what happened and he leans into me and he says you have no business prying into people's abortions abortion is a private thing and I was instructed not to bring it up. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm in an eating disorder group. There was no subject out. In fact, they, they said it was treated by the talking cure. You're supposed to talk about anything and everything. And yet this one subject that so many women endure is off limits in an eating disorder group. And like any addiction, it's not what you're eating. It's what's eating you. And I thought these are powerful feelings and I want to learn more. So I started the first therapeutic support group that I knew of for um, healing after abortion. That was that was uh, 30-some years ago, <laughs> 35 years ago. So it's been a lifetime of, you know, studying this issue, spreading our ministry, which is now in 80 countries and 37 languages. It really has spread all over the world. And it's been spread by the people whose lives it changed because they felt they were the only ones who felt this way. And yet when the silence is lifted, there's an, an, a safe non-judgmental place is made where people are allowed to grieve, then people can heal as they unpack that and all the levels of denial. And um, that's that's sort of my intro into how and why I got involved in it. And then, of course, there were so many people along the way telling me, not just then, but other stories of, like, you, this isn't your business. But I do think it's my business when people are um, hurting are suicidal, are severely depressed, have anniversary reactions, um, and all the mental health issues that I have seen and and documented and been a part of researching for many, many years now, just how devastating a choice for abortion can be and how, um, 
how hard it can be to live with because not only is there this physical violation of a very female sacred space, because I do believe our capacity to create life is a sacred space within us, Mm. and that violation has occurred, and then there's um, the spiritual and the moral injury that people have to grapple with, Mm. which is, um, we recognize that in soldiers, why can't we recognize it in mothers? Yes, especially in this, you know, (laughs) the war on children that America has been engaged in for the last 50 years. Teresa Burke is our guest, and Dr. Burke uh, holds her undergraduate in English communications with an emphasis on social work and went to Immaculata University to earn an MA and PhD in counseling psychology. She's a nationally certified psychologist, a certified diplomat of the American Psychotherapy Association, a licensed professional counselor, a board-certified clinical psychotherapist, and a diplomat of the American Board of Forensic Counselors. She knows what she is talking about when she is telling you about the mental health impact of abortion on the women and men who experience it. And she also brought her faith with her into this arena of serving and ministering God's love to people broken and hurting and grieving after abortion. And so I really appreciate um, the way, the unique way that God has fashioned you for tackling this problem. And I think that um, even in churches today, Dr. Burke, that are pro-life, there still is no space for the abortion wounded to come forward, to be healed, to be restored, and to have it just be part of their story, like, you know, uh, divorce is part of someone's story at church, or whatever the adverse life circumstance is, there can be acceptance, but it seems not so still with abortion. Um, how is how is your organization at Rachel's Vineyard addressing this changing landscape um, in light of, you know, the Roe v. Wade and Dobbs decisions uh, impacting the legality of abortion. And, you know, it's more widespread now in some states and some states have outlawed it. Uh, how's Rachel's Vineyard reacting to this? Is there and, and what do you see on the changing landscape? Well, I can tell you, Kim, one of the first things that happened is that this decision has really pricked the conscience of not just this nation, but the world. And um, we have never been more busy with our hotline. A lot of older women who um, fought for this right and are being asked to re-engage in the fight um, are calling in in a lot of distress because I'm, I'm surprised at the sort of the landscape of suddenly there's this flood of older women. And that actually began in COVID because people didn't have the normal distractions to of work of you know lots of busy activities because everything was shut down so people had you know i I use this word prick of conscience but when the conscience is aborted the truth does get distorted and in that time of quiet of no social contact and we can talk more about the role of social contact in helping to self-regulate the nervous system but for a lot of people they were in a free fall of anxiety and didn't understand why and ended up on our retreats which we began um we went as far as we could until the world was shut down you know because people wanted to keep offering the retreats especially when people wanted to come forward and then again in a very big spike after this landmark decision was made. And I think it's interesting, even when we look at um, the way that it was initially set up five decades ago, 
there was that decision to legalize abortion really made it a woman's choice. And it was based on a segregated view of women. And, and I'd say also their unique role in shaping the culture um, as mothers, as future citizens, you know, the breed- breeders of future citizens. Um, and, and the I don't wear that for- as a badge of honor. I'll accept that. <laughs> the, the distorted view um, portrayed women as very isolated as it released society from any responsibility to assist women and their children. I think this was very clear. The court placed the full burden yes. of the decision directly on her shoulders. And like Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, I believe that he bragged all the time um, that that his company had done the most to fund the legal campaign which institutionalized abortion mm. rights. So it was an entitlement that he welcomed as a very clever freedom. You know, and, and I didn't know that detail, but you're right. I mean, pregnancy is a time when even strangers join in the experience and rub your belly on the bus and get up and give you a seat, right? Pregnancy is a community experience. Abortion is the loneliest experience I think many of us ever will go through. Yeah, and and of course, this is freedom for Hugh Hefner and all the playboys. Sure. Because they don't have consequences of using the woman's body for profit and passing pleasure, because it was profitable to have abortion legal because then these um, that lifestyle could thrive and men wouldn't have to be responsible. Mm. So what the court failed to acknowledge, I think, is that women are deeply rooted in our relational attachments more than any sex on the planet. <laughs> We're capable of tremendous love, women are, courage, and we can sacrifice. Every woman listening knows that. We're capable of <laughs> incredible sacrificing and love to cope with challenges, and also to welcome the joys of an unplanned pregnancy as long as we're given the support needed. So this ripped all the support away from women, and it ensured that they knew that the full responsibility of childbearing and parenting is going to be her burden alone. And it was celebrated as a giant step forward for women's equality. And talk about twisting the issue. So it removes us from our relational attachments that we always feel, even you know, and it and um, it's an extreme abandonment rather than empowerment. That's how I saw it. I know that's how women all over the world experienced it, especially even when men would say that progressive, well, I'll support whatever choice you want, <laughs> which sounds like they're being so understanding. But what a lot of women dream to hear is that no matter what, I'm here for you and I will do whatever it takes. This is subtle and really important that saying you can do whatever you want, dear, or even the government telling you this is your private decision with your provider, which to me is such a joke, as we've mentioned before. The practitioner, I don't know if he was a physician who performed my abortion, didn't know me. I had no idea who he was. I never saw his face. You know, um, the idea that, that you're consulting, and then many women hide this from their regular OBGYN, and he still has no idea, you know, that a decision was taken in this area. Is telling women it's your choice a form of abandonment? And if so, break that down for us about the dynamics of it. Well, I do think it's a form of abandonment because nobody has to help her. And we still don't have... Um, corporate campuses and colleges providing daycare centers where you could take your kids. You know what I mean? Right. They're just 
they're just as far as we've come for women's empowerment, we're not helping mothers at all. It, in fact, if now the corporations like Citibank and everybody else, as soon as this started, you know, they started with the Texas law, it's like immediately they're willing to pay for your abortion. We'll we'll put you up in a hotel overnight instead of we'll give you maternity leave and we'll give flex time in the office space and we'll have all these other things that allow you to have a mother and a career. None of that happens when abortion is what every corporation would prefer because the truth is it's cheaper for them. And um, that's not empowerment, I don't think. That doesn't offer you a choice except abortion. And I feel like that's where we are. But um, the chance of what's been released is like ban off our bodies. We won't go back. We won't go back. And remember, we won't go back. We need to control our bodies. That's the mantra. And it's so interesting if we want to break that down, actually, because... I see this as a threat. This is a survivor mode. Um, to feel that the danger is in your body. It's not the child who's in danger. It's not your baby, but it's your body's in danger without this so-called right. And um, I think that that's really kind of interesting. And when we look at uh, the reliving of trauma, and you know I, from my book, Forbidden Grief, that I wrote extensively about traumatic reenactments as a way that people are trying to master feelings of helplessness. And this is why 50% of abortions in this country are repeat procedures. It's an unsuccessful attempt at healing or a way to numb yourself by repeated wounding. And so um, to master the helplessness, I said, another way to tell the story that's not been spoken because it's kept a secret. So how many of those this past summer from um, those groups, uh, one was like, Jane's Revenge, another one I think is Ruth sent us, Ruth Gator, you know, the Supreme Court Justice. Ginsburg, yes. Um, how many of them are reenacting the rage of being forced to do something they didn't want to do? Mm. How many are trying to normalize and justify the right to kill as a human right in order to avoid dealing with the loss? That's why I said we won't go back. We won't go back and remember. We want this to be medical care. We want this to be endorsed by the highest court in the land. And to relive an aspect of the trauma can feel empowering, especially if one eventually shares the opinion of their own perpetrator. Um, And that might mean agreeing that the violence to the body and your spirit is what you want and what you really need, as if to master the trauma by repeating it. At the same time, I think that people go around convincing themselves that that makes them in control of their body, to put their body under more threat. So aggression is also something that asserts that you have to have control. It's your choice. It's your legal right. And since abortion was enshrined in law, no one could dare question this reckless sort of deceptive victory. And I think that's what people say. I bought the lie. I hear that all the time. Even all these older women I told you that are coming forward in droves, they said, we bought the lie. And um, they're upset about it. And they're being invited to come march with their neighbors. And they're saying, they don't even know I had an abortion. And none of these people had one. What are they fighting for? You see all other sorts of groups of, you know, swept up into this. Um, but the reenactment now becomes a necessity. It becomes a, like a vital weapon to grasp for protection. Like this is how we protect ourselves, to injure ourselves. So um, I, do, I do think that there is a, a mentality here where the right to kill has been enshrined in the psyche as a form of power and control. 
And instead of recognizing our equality, our uniqueness as women, we've accepted the betrayal of our maternal instinct and, and also the abandonment of the children that we create as mm. a legitimate necessity. Mm. These are our children. These are our babies. These are a part of our bodies. Mm. You know? And that, it, yes. It's an assault on the self that I really don't think this should be the price that we have to pay to obtain any semblance of power or control well, over our bodies, for oh, sure. Dr. Teresa Burke is our guest, the founder of the Rachel's Vineyard Retreats, and they offer abortion recovery, healing, and reconciliation of the trauma that has been experienced through um, retreats worldwide for women and men. And Dr. Burke, as you uh, heard, if you've been listening, is also a a licensed clinician, and she's the author of the book Forbidden Grief, and I highly recommend it to pastors and church leaders who want to know more about the impact of abortion on those who experience it. And I'd like to shift gears just a little and give you an opportunity to talk to or, you know, to share with the those church leaders who may be listening, pastors in particular, about, you know, what to do to get involved with uh, preventing abortion in the community, is it is it your thought that offering healing, uh, putting out the the me- the message of repentance and reconciliation can actually be preventive? Maybe, maybe not. But what what is it that pastors can do who are perhaps hearing some of this for the first time today? Well, we understand that if there's healing of women and men who've suffered the loss of a child from abortion that the abortion rate would be cut in half because every one of them is going to go on, 50% of them are going to go on to do it again and again and again. That's the reenactment. So the other thing is that consider consider grieving yourself if you're a pastor who's listening. And we learned this, that we had these beautiful retreats offered, but pastors would not print the announcement because they had come to grips with their own loss an abortion that they might have had in their history or um, help someone else to have or a family member who did. And so when there is like a conflict, it makes it hard to to even preach about the issue in a way that would affirm um, others and invite others to healing. And that's why, you know, with certain groups, we were doing retreats just for pastors because we thought that that's where the bottleneck is in giving the message of freedom, of recovery, of reconciliation, of healing. And if you're a pastor or you work in a church and we can't uplift that message, that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's new life and that out of out of death, that's what God does. He brings life out of death. So there is no greater field today for evangelization and freedom than in this arena of abortion and then all the other slaveries that come from that. In terms of when I say slaveries, I mean how the nervous system is held captive in the fight or flight, fear freeze modes of trauma, that they're always reacting and um, defending the self instead of entering a process of grieving the loss and and allowing God to come and minister to that place that so many people are in need of. And we can see that because there isn't even peace in the family anymore. And um, it starts, I think, Mother Teresa was the one who said that abortion is the greatest destroyer of peace because it's happening in the very home. And the children, um, you know, the family, it's, it's a violence in the family. 
And it makes sense that kids are drawn into gangs to belong somewhere or become outcasts, loners, who can easily decide to become aggressors, too, because um, we, we shouldn't use killing to solve any social problem or when we perceive someone as a threat or an obstacle to something that we think we want or we need. So um, I, I think that that abortion mentality is not lost on all these children that are the survivors mm. and might see themselves or their own lives as an undue burden, you know? Yes. Uh, and and that's, old people, too. Yes. <laughs> Yes, expendable humans, right? Dr. Teresa Burke is our guest, and that's a great transition into the second part of our conversation, which will be available soon, as um, we're going to also talk about, you know, the ripples and the greater impact beyond the personal suffering and reconciliation needed with the individual who has had an abortion, but how does it affect generations? Where does the trauma go to reside? What about disenfranchised grief? We'll we'll tackle those topics in the second part of our conversation. I hope that you'll be here for it as we continue with Dr. Teresa Burke, and we'll also link to the Rachel's Vineyard website and resources such as her book, Forbidden Grief, at cradlemyheart.org. Thanks so much for being with us. Don't miss part two. This is Cradle My Heart Radio with Kim Katola, preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. Please get in touch with Kim. Find out more at cradlemyheart.org. You can listen to the podcast on all platforms.